All right, welcome back, everybody, to Season 3, Episode 6 of the Building Lifelong Athletes Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Today, we're talking all about NSAIDs, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So we're going to talk all about these injections, more specifically. So we're not talking about the oral medication, but talking about these injections. So we're going to talk about things like the pharmacokinetics, the chondrotoxicity, when to use them, what my thoughts are, all about that. So let's dive in right now. So first, let's talk about pharmacokinetics, right? So pharmacokinetics is a fancy word for essentially how these drugs are metabolized in our body, right? So pharmaco meaning, you know, the medication kinetics and how it works and so how it moves. And so this is talking about stuff like half-life and bioavailability, all this fancy stuff, but all, all it's really saying is, hey, when we take this medication, how does it work? And so first let's break down the root word NSAIDs, that is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So we've talked about steroids, right? We talked all about that last time. These are non-steroidal, so there's a different mechanism for how they work. What they do is they prevent the conversion of arachidonic acid into things called prostacyclins, prostaglandins, and thromboxanes. So we are inhibiting these being made, and they're done so by inhibiting the cyclooxygenase pathway, or the COX pathway. Like I said, sorry this sounds a little deep, but we're just helping differentiate why we choose one injection versus another and what the mechanism is. So once again, when we are on these enzymes, we're trying to inhibit the pro-inflammatory things like the prostaglandins, prostacyclins, and thromboxanes. And we do that by inhibiting this COX pathway. And it's not just one simple enzyme. There's actually two main enzymes, COX-1 and COX-2. There are others, but those are the main ones. And the different medications we have, some are more specific to which COX they inhibit at the end of the day. So like I said, the COX-1 inhibitors that we think more like in terms of hit those receptors are the ones like diclofenac, naproxen, aspirin, ibuprofen. So our most common NSAIDs, they'll do both actually. Like they'll inhibit one and two. Um, like I said, it's not specific, but the reason why we talk about these thinking about one is because the other COX-2 inhibitors that are more selective do predominantly only COX-2. So like I said, you are going to get one and two with the common ones like ibuprofen, naproxen, diclofenac, all that. But then when we talk about COX-2 ones that are more selective, we're talking about celecoxib and meloxicam. These are more likely to inhibit COX-2. Once again, we will also have some COX-1 inhibition as well, but it's actually like they're 50 times more preferential for COX-2. So like for every one COX-1 that's being inhibited, 50 COX-2 are being inhibited. So once again, that is why they're more COX-2 selective. Those, those are not as common, you know, in terms of going over and getting those, picking up at the, at the pharmacy by over-the-counter, not going to find those necessarily. Whereas all the, you know, ibuprofen and whatnot you'll find there. So the question you might be asking is like, well, Jordan, this is super nerdy and boring. Why do I care about this? Well, we care about it because specifically COX-1 is expressed everywhere, pretty much throughout the body. So kind of all over. The things we really worry about is they're expressed in like the gastric mucosa. So the lining of our stomach and our kidneys and other places as well. And so like I said, we have some spots there where it can lead to issues and we'll talk about those. The reason we care about COX-2 inhibition only is because there are, it's limited to fewer tissues. It's not as diffuse as COX-1. And like I said, and COX-2 is usually increased. The expression is increased during inflammatory processes. So when we're having inflammation going on in our body, we have, you know, an increase in COX-2. And so if we are just selectively going for COX-2, we're saying, okay, we're not going as widespread in the body or maybe not hitting the gastric mucosa maybe not hitting the kidneys as much and we're going directly for the inflammation like that sounds like a win-win like i said we care so much because if we continually take NSAIDs even with injection form like i said but this is more the data is more on the oral forms but if we take NSAIDs over and over we can have irritation of our stomach it can lead to ulcers we can also be hard on our kidneys can lead to kidney injuries and so we care about that because man that's not a good thing to have we don't want to be taking one medication and create more problems and so that's what we we worry about and that's why when we have that cox 2 selective ones we're hopefully decreasing the side effects that we have and then also focusing on the pro-inflammatory cox pathway that's known to happen during inflammation we're trying to block that as well well, so 
We'll also talk about the half-life during pharmacokinetics. Half-life is essentially how long it takes till about half the medication is gone in your system. And so specifically, we're looking at you know what they look like from injection versus oral form, right? So ibuprofen, half-life's about one to two hours, right? So how do all this compare though with in, you know, when you take it by mouth or when you inject it. So like I said, about one to two hours normally, that's fine. If we look at the bioavailability, meaning how much that's available, it's actually pretty similar between an intramuscular injection and an oral um, pill. So there's about mm, 90 to 100% availability. So like I said, it's pretty much the same with oral or with an intramuscular, like I said. That being said, about 25 to 50% of that bioavailable medication is found in the synovial fluid. So let's take a step back here. If we're getting some sort of NSAID by either an oral pill, so we take some ibuprofen, or an injection intramuscularly. Like I said, the bioavailability is about the same. That's going to be good. But of that bioavailability, only about 25 to 50% of that concentration that's available is found in the synovial fluid. So what we're saying is, you know, the medication we're taking, we're not seeing nearly as much in the synovial fluid, but that's pretty normal because it's not as widespread, right? It's not that close to the blood supply, and that kind of makes sense. And so what about topical NSAIDs as well, right? We have topical NSAIDs, thing called um, it's a diclofenac gel. Usually you can buy it over the counter now. This also is an option for us because it has less systemic exposure. So we talked about before that percentages, right? There seems to be about, only about 6% of that concentration is absorbed systemically by these topical ones. And then on top of that, though, we actually have an increased percentage of in the synovial fluid. So overall, systemically absorbing only about 6%, but inside the synovial fluid that we sample about 50 to 80 percent of that concentration seen so it might be like a lot of words like what's going on what i'm saying just to reiterate here kind of going back and forth is take oral or you take into the muscle their bioavailability really good it's going to get there but you're not going to have nearly as much in the joint you do topical you're going to have less systemic absorption so less without throughout the rest of your body and at other sites but you're gonna have more and the fluid at the joint that you're putting that so like i said that's kind of where we're looking at and it's like an overall like i said if we kind of take a step back, 10,000 foot view, the exposure of NSAIDs is similar between if you give it in your muscle, if you get it in IV, if you take it orally, instead, there's all those different factors. And what about though, if we inject it into the joint? Well, into the joints, a little bit different. We know we do see about a two to three fold increase in the maximal synovial concentration compared to oral for a one-time dose. So if you're saying, hey, I'm comparing a one-time injection of a non-steroidal medication versus, hey, a one-time dose of oral NSAIDs, you're going to see a two to three higher increase inside the synovial fluid. So like I said, we're going to see more, which makes sense, right? If we're injecting into a joint, we're probably going to see a higher concentration there. So that's what we expected. But here's the big caveat. So we have two to three when it's only one for oral or one for intraarticular. But if you take oral NSAIDs for about a week, which is a pretty standard way of doing it, right? You say, hey, let's take this for a week, kind of calm things down. So let's take it for a week. The dosing there would actually produce 10 times more um, synovial concentration compared to the one-time injection, which kind of sounds not intuitive. But like I said, if you do an oral one for a week, the concentration is going to build up enough where we actually have more concentration exposure to the joint than just a one-time injection. And so once again, I do want to make sure that I'm cautious in saying that just because we find a higher concentration inside of the joint does not necessarily mean it's going to be more efficacious, right? doesn't mean it's going to work better necessarily. But that being said, we're talking all about, you know, are we getting this? And so that's just something to think about, you know, one one dose versus one dose seems to be less in the joint with orals, but then if you give it for a week straight after just that one injection, um, you know, if a week of orals is probably going to lead to a higher concentration. But that being said, I also want to mention that systemic absorption, right? So these NSAIDs, if you inject it in the joint, is it just going to stay in the joint? No, that's not true either. There's about 80% 
bioavailability that we find or kind of 80% concentration inside the systemic blood system. So once again, if you inject it into the joint, you're still going to get it systemically. So it's not just going to stay in one spot. And so like I said, all the side effects that you could have from any other NSAID also still applies to an intraarticular injection, which seems weird, but like I said, that seems to be what the data shows. And then I also want to touch on chondrotoxicity. So we've talked about this before, had a whole different podcast about this, but chondrotoxicity, meaning damage to the cartilage inside the joint. Are these chondrotoxic? We know steroids are chondrotoxic, right? We've talked about that. And so are NSAIDs? Well, there is some studies. Let's look at oral NSAIDs first. There's some studies showing there's an association between oral NSAIDs and the medial joint space loss when comparing an X-ray, right? So it took a study where they said, hey, we're going to put these people on some oral steroids for a pretty prolonged time. And they're going to repeat X-rays and see what happens. And they found that there seems to be a decrease in the joint space of the knee. So saying, hey, if we see decreased joint space in the knee, that means the cartilage must be getting worn away. So that's what we're kind of saying. Uh, might be happening there but the question for that is are we capturing the people who use them because they have worse disease to begin with so like is it the NSAIDs actually causing it or do they have a worse disease therefore causing them to take NSAIDs more right and then there because of that we see progression of the arthritis so it's not necessarily clear but like I said there's some association with it and I just want to talk about that and then from an intraarticular perspective, there is a positive research. There's not a lot of research saying, hey, does intraarticular NSAIDs lead to chondrotoxicity? There was one study that showed that single doses of Toradol did show significant in vitro chondrotoxicity, right? So once again, we talk about how those work. We kind of take out some usually cartilage cells from a surgery they're doing, put it in a petri dish, kind of simulate the environment um, of a normal joint. And then from there, they inject different medications and they did seem to have an increase in chondrotoxicity when we inject Toradol. So overall, it appears like there might be some chondrotoxicity, although the data is not as robust, right, as steroids. And so there's just a lot less research. So it's hard to make heads or tails of anything. So when I kind of think about it, right, I think that this is a less lesser known, right? There's not as much study, but it potentially doesn't seem to be as slam dunk. And so it might, might be an option where it's less chondrotoxic than steroids, but we're not quite sure. I can't confidently say that this time. And so now we're going to talk about, Hey, how do these compare to NSAIDs or, or to steroids? I'm sorry. So we have our NSAIDs, right? And then our steroids under that umbrella of anti-inflammatory injections, we have steroids, we have NSAIDs. How do they compare? Well, like I said, once again, the theme here is there's just not a lot of data, unfortunately. Like, holy cow, I was looking through this expecting to be pretty robust and it is not, there's not a lot. There's some studies here and there looking at things, but not a lot, which is very unfortunate. But what I did find was looking at hip osteoarthritis. So. so we looked at steroids versus NSAIDs in the hips. The dosing they were looking at was 40 milligrams of tramcinolone versus 30 milligrams of Toradol, which are both pretty standard dosing. I mean, essentially usually tramcinolone comes in 40 milligram concentration. So one CC is usually 40 milligrams versus Toradol. One CC is usually 30 milligrams. So pretty standard dosing there. What they're looking for is that both treatment groups were successful. So there were successful treatment groups and they were not significantly different in their outcomes at one, three, and six months. And like I said, and usually these outcomes are pain and function. And, you know, they said about 70% of people had improvement at one month, 52 to 56 at three months, and then 41 to 46% of people had improvement at six months. And so Overall, though, greater than 50% of people had improvement in the pain and greater than 20% had improvement in function at six months. And so once again, very similar results, though. And so, like I said, though, one reason I consider this as a kind of a worthwhile study is because we know, like I said, the chondrotoxicity of steroids. And there's actually a 
some concern that when we go specifically in the hip, we tend to have an increased um, risk of avascular necrosis or breaking down of that bone a lot faster. And so if we can do an NSAID, which may not be as contratoxic potentially, that might be an option, which would be kind of cool. But like I said, we know that steroids in the hip are kind of um, a high risk procedure uh, occasionally, especially if we repeat them over and over again. And so, like I said, it's not necessarily at the one-time dose, but repeat dose is really when we worry. But like I said, it's an option to have something there. So you might be picking, you know, a lesser of two evils potentially by doing an NSAID. So then let's talk about knee osteoarthritis, right? So once again, looking at steroids versus NSAIDs at knee arthritis, once again, not a lot of studies. I was sh I'm shocked. I was actually shocked that there wasn't a direct comparison of NSAIDs versus steroids, but that's what it is. They kind of had a different design where they had viscosupplementation supplementation used with either a steroid or NSAID, right? So we talked about the hyaluronic acid derivative injections. So they did that injection with either a steroid or an NSAID, and then they did that once every week for three weeks is what it was. And at the end of the day, there was no difference in pain or functional outcomes when compared at three months. And so not a whole lot of data going on there. Once again, doesn't seem to be substantially worse than an NSAID anything. And once again, no direct comparisons, which I thought was generally shocking. Um, there was also one study that kind of showed similar efficacy looking at oral tenoxicam versus intraarticular. So they're saying, hey, if you take oral medication, so oral NSAIDs, which tenoxicam is not a very common NSAID, so I don't know how translatable this is, but studies shown that if you take oral tenoxicam versus an intraarticular injection, which the injection was each week for three weeks, said at the end of the day, the takeaway was that they had similar results, which meaning that they had, you know, similar pain and functional outcomes and you know maybe had some less systemic effects with the intraarticular injection as opposed to three weeks of steroids but that's something to consider as well once again should we be doing intraarticular or should we be doing oral it's a really good question also talking about trigger finger next there is some a couple articles on trigger finger there's actually a cochrane review on that enough which like i said cochrane review is usually like whoa lots and lots of stuff but it was just a couple articles they looked at um but i i was excited about that i thought this is pretty dope to have a cochrane review on intraarticular as a subsection of trigger finger general treatment but hey i'll take it and they looked at NSAIDs for trigger figure and then um, looked at it specifically for injections. And they showed by 24 weeks, results from two different trials show that NSAIDs offered little to no benefit when compared to steroids. No real difference in resolution of symptoms, recurrence, total active motion, residual pain, patient-determined success, or adverse outcome. So essentially about equal, which, I mean, the way you look at it, you could say, oh, it's, it's no better than steroids. Or you could say, hey, it's just as good as steroids, kind of depending on what lens you're coming with there. So... This is kind of how I approach it, right? So you're saying, oh, well, Jordan, that was, a, once again, a really depressing episode. There's not a whole lot of takeaway there. And once again, I'm just bringing, don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just bringing up what I see in the literature. And like I said, I think it's a call for more literature in the sports medicine community. But like I said, I'm very thankful for what we do have and the people working really hard. But like I said, sometimes we do the things that we do and are they evidence-based? I'm not sure. And that's why I'm trying to dig to the bottom and figure it out. So how do I approach this? Well, like I said, there's actually no FDA approved indication for toradol arthritis, which is kind of shocking. Steroid is approved, but we're essentially using everything off label. So we kind of have to be aware about that. Like I said, I do think it is reasonable to use these. I think there's enough data showing that, hey, they seem to be safe. So I don't think it's a dangerous experimental um, injection by any sense of the imagination. But like I said, the the evidence base on this is not very high. We are not just going to be sitting on mountains and mountains of evidence to defend what we do. And so we're kind of going off in the in the weeds a little bit here. But like I said, we do have some rationale and some evidence base for like why we do the things we do. And you have to have a rationale for why I do things, right? So I do think it is reasonable to use this in place of a steroid injection, right? The way I think of this is a potentially quote unquote less bad option. Like I said, I do not have enough data to say this is definitely better in terms of chondrotoxicity, like I said, but multiple different studies 
have shown that, hey, it does not seem to be inferior to steroids for certain things like, you know, short term outcomes for arthritis. And so it is reasonable to do that if someone has a contraindication to a steroid. Right. So we're going to use steroids and NSAIDs pretty much for the same reason. Right. We're just trying to get temporary pain relief. And so that's kind of what we're thinking about when we use these with that frame and that lens of mine. It's okay to kind of use them as needed. Once again, we're going to use our brains here, right? We're going to talk with our patients. We're going to talk with your doctor. We're going to do that. Try to figure out what is the best option for you. And one thing I want to talk about too is who shouldn't get one. Well, I think if you have a history of heart disease, right? Cardiac history, NSAIDs are usually not a good idea. If you have a bleeding history, history of kidney issues like chronic kidney disease or history of ulcers, I would probably stay away from these injections. Like I said, NSAIDs still have that systemic effect, can be, can have issues with that. It is a one-time injection, so not nearly as problematic as if you're taking oral NSAIDs every day, every day, but like I said, something to steer away from. And so my practice, how do I use these? Once again, like I said, I kind of use these as an adjunct or an alternative to steroids. So let's say someone, maybe steroids doesn't seem like a good idea. Like they're super, super um, young and we're worried about, hey, the, we want to make sure that the cartilage is preserved as much as possible. We know steroids are bad, right? We do not know that NSAIDs are necessarily better by any stretch, but like we don't have any data saying they're worse from that perspective. And so it's one of those things that might be the better of two bad things. I'm not sure. But once again, we're doing it for the same reason that we are just trying to get temporary relief to allow someone to get back to do what they want to do. This is not a long-term fix for pretty much anything. And so we have to consider that always. On top of that, maybe it uses someone when I think a steroid is contraindicated. Someone who's having poorly controlled blood sugars, right? That might be an issue or someone who has, you know, some other reason for they don't want to get steroids. And so this is something I would think about. Like I said, we're going to still use it from the same lens. If we're choosing between anti-inflammatories, then this is the option that we're going to choose. And so just something to think about. So like I said, that's kind of how I've used these. This is the literature that I've seen, not very impressive literature, but I just want to share that with everybody so we can kind of make some more informed decisions. So I really appreciate you listening. Thank you so much though for stopping by. If you did enjoy it, it would mean the world to me if you liked commented, shared, subscribed, or share this with a friend. That would be awesome and get the word out. So thanks again so much. I really appreciate it. Now get off your phone, get outside and enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.